0: If you have been with us the last while, you know that we are in a series that is titled After Green Trees Tagline. Our tagline is Dig In, Branch Out, Live It Up. So our first series was Dig In, which was Dig In to the Preeminence of Christ as it is revealed to us in the book of Colossians. This series is Branch Out, which follows logically. It is to help us apply Christ's preeminence as we relate to our families, our community, and our world. And this morning, we're going to talk about civil disobedience, and in particular, something we're going to call holy disobedience. Now, those words, civil disobedience, generate controversy, and they raise, it, those words raise questions. So, what is the relationship between Christians and their government? Is there ever a reason for Christians to disobey government? And if so, when should Christians disobey and how can they do so well? So our work this morning is to bring some order to this topic by looking at Scripture. Now there is some irony to this, and that is that I am not a pastor, I am a lawyer. And most of my professional career, I have counseled people on how they should go about obeying the law. So this morning, I've come before my congregation and tell my congregation how they should disobey the law. So um, I suppose that, um, however, that nobody should be surprised that any lawyer can argue any side of any issue. So before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, we come this morning to talk about the relationship between your people and government. And because it is Memorial Day Sunday, it is right that we should first pause and express our thanks for those who have made sacrifices of time and even life for our country. So, Lord, we thank you for our nation. We thank you for those who serve, who serve in all kinds of different ways. We pray this morning that you would enlighten us, that you would enliven us that you would bring clarity to our minds and courage to our hearts. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so what do we mean by holy disobedience? And I think it's best if we start by looking at a couple of recent examples from the news of holy disobedience. You may remember that last year there was a young white man named Dylan Roof, who attacked and killed members of a historic black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And in the wake of that tragedy, South Carolina legislators began discussing removal of the Confederate flag from the state capital of South Carolina. A young African-American woman named Bree Newsom took matters into her own hands Brie Newsom scaled the flagpole of the state capitol building. She snatched the flag and brought it down. And as she was coming down, she said to the police who were waiting to arrest her, In the name of Jesus, this flag has to come down. You come against me with hatred and violence and oppression. I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. And as she was handcuffed and led away, she recited the 23rd Psalm. That begins, The Lord is my shepherd. Now, as the Confederate flag controversy was simmering down, there was another controversy that was heating up in Rowan County, Kentucky. There, Kim Davis, the county clerk, ceased issuing marriage licenses after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of same sex marriage. Davis was a relatively new Christian and a relatively new Catholic. And she believed that as a Christian, she should not have to include her name on same-sex marriage licenses. She spent six days in jail for contempt of court before she was released when she agreed to enter into a court decree that she would not, quote, interfere with the issuance of marriage licenses by deputy clerks to all legally eligible couples. Now, in both of these cases an action which was taken which violated law and which was motivated by religious belief. So, this morning, for my purposes, I'm going to use the words holy disobedience to mean an act which violates law and which is motivated by sincere religious belief. Now, these cases tell us a couple things about holy disobedience. First of all, acts of holy disobedience may be popular, they may be unpopular, They can fall anywhere on the political spectrum, the usual spectrum from conservative to liberal. And an act of holy disobedience is motivated by religious belief. So in contrast, not all civil disobedience is motivated by faith. Before we go any further, I want to tell you that I believe that not every act of holy disobedience is equally valid or wise or effective and we'll come back to that in a little bit. So here is this morning's sermon in a sentence. Christians are generally to obey government as God's instrument of authority for our good. However, the duty to obey is not absolute and in some cases we are obligated to exercise holy disobedience which requires courage, compassion wisdom, and faith. We're going to cover a lot of Scripture this morning, so I have recruited a personal posse. uh, Josh Lang and Sarah McGinnis are going to help us by reading Scripture this morning. So our discussion starts with understanding the Christian's responsibility to government and obedience to its laws, and we're going to start in Romans chapter 13. So Josh, would you start us off this morning, please?
1: No problem. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of the possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Okay, so
0: from this passage, we can draw several conclusions. The first is Paul says... The authorities that exist have been established by God. This means that government is God's. He's established it. He's made it. It is his institution. And that is true whether the government recognizes that fact or not. Secondly, we read, For the one in authority is God's servant for our good. They are God's servants to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So God, therefore, establishes government as his agents to promote good and punish evil. And we also read this, therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So Christians have a high duty to respect And submit to the authorities as submission to God. Now, if this were all we had in Scripture, this would be easy, wouldn't it? We would always submit to government as God's instrument of authority. But that's not the end of the story, is it? There are other commandments in Scripture, and here are some examples that you will recognize. Sarah.
2: You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength.
1: You shall not murder. Love your neighbor as yourself.
2: Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy.
0: So what do we do when the duty to obey government runs into one of these other commandments and we cannot do both we'll have to either obey one set of commandments and one set of authorities or the other set of commandments and the other authority something has to give we must disobey one commandment and obey the other so which one you may remember that we
1: read this in Colossians Josh he that is Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and in that everything he might be preeminent. So these verses
0: could be familiar to you. We tried to memorize these verses together. In Christ, everything was created, including thrones and authorities and rulers. Christ is preeminent over all things, and therefore our duty to obey human authorities is conditioned on a greater overarching duty to obey God as God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. So when we read the rest of Scripture, it's really not a surprise that we see specific cases where loyalty to God meant disobedience to the king. So we're going to look at some of those cases right now. Sarah, would you start us off?
2: Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live.
0: So here was a clear order from the king to kill the boy babies of the Hebrew women. But the Hebrew midwives knew that to obey the king was to disobey God. We read that they feared God. They did not do what the king commanded. They acted to save the lives of the boys. And for saving the boys, we read
1: that they received God's blessing. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of God, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, that you are to fall down and to worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace.
0: After Israel was conquered by the Babylonians, three Jewish men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, would not bow down to the golden idol that was set up by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. They were brought before
1: the king, and he threatened to throw them into the fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We see again a clear command from
0: the king and a refusal to obey. The king commanded these men to worship another god, but God forbids this by the first two of the Ten Commandments. God blessed the three, he protected them from the heat of the furnace, and King Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw that they were going to be safe and preserved, called them out of the furnace. And he said to them, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. The king of Babylon came away impressed by the God of Israel. So then we come to the New Testament, and we read in the book of Acts that the apostles healed a man in the name of Jesus and were then arrested for preaching and healing in that name. Sarah.
2: And as they, the disciples, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them.
0: So for a third time, we see a clear command from the ruling authority, but the disciples knew that they must obey God rather than man. The rest of the New Testament is the story of God's blessing of their work. So these three examples of holy disobedience allow us to draw some general rules. So, though Christians are generally required to obey government, they must disobey where the authorities require the believer to do something which God forbids, or the authorities forbid the believer to do what God requires. This generally means that Christians should disobey when government will not permit believers to exercise their faith freely or government fails to protect its people. So now we have a general outline of a philosophy of government and obedience and disobedience to government. There are some other things that we could observe and I'll just just look at them briefly. First of all, we should disobey only where the issue is very important. We should exhaust legal means before using disobedience. And we should use nonviolent disobedience before we resort to violence. But there's something more that we should talk about here, and that is I said at the beginning that not every case of holy disobedience is as valid, right, and effective. There is much more to right and effective holy disobedience than a right philosophy. Just as important is the character of the person exercising holy disobedience. So, I want to talk about four character qualities that the person exercising holy disobedience should have. These are courage, compassion, wisdom, and faith. Courage, compassion, wisdom, and faith. And I want to do that by talking about four Christians who exercised holy disobedience. So, we're going to start off with courage, and we're going to look at a woman named Corey Tenboom and her family. Corey Tenboom was born into a family of watchmakers in Holland. They were all Christians and they lived during World War II. The Nazis occupied Holland and began to arrest the Jews and take them to concentration camps. The Ten Boom family would not stand idly by as the Jews were taken to their deaths. And so they built into their home a secret room, a hiding place where they could hide Jews in defiance of the Nazi authorities. One day a Jewish mother and child, a baby, were brought to the Ten Boom house for hiding. And it happened that there was a local pastor there that day as they came in. Corrie Ten Boom took the pastor to the room where the mother and baby were hiding, and she showed the newborn baby to the pastor. And she said to him, Would you be willing to take a Jewish mother and baby into your home? They will almost certainly be arrested otherwise. The color drained from the pastor's face. And he said, Miss Tenboom, I do hope that you're not involved with this illegal concealment. It's just not safe. No, definitely not. We could lose our lives for that Jewish child. Casper Tenboom, Corey's aged father, took the child in his arms.
1: And this is what he said You say we could lose our lives for this child. I will consider that the greatest honor. That could come to my family Casper Tenboom and his daughters Betsy and Corey Were arrested
0: for helping the Jews They were taken to concentration camps Casper and Betsy died in the camps Corey was released Due to a clerical error Seven days before all Of the women of her age In the concentration camps Were taken to the gas chamber It takes great courage To exercise holy disobedience Then there's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He models compassion. Bonhoeffer was a German theologian and pastor, and he was one of the founders of what was called the Confessing Church, which opposed Hitler. Bonhoeffer spoke out against Hitler's euthanasia program and the persecution of the Jews. And to the church, he had this to say, Sarah.
2: Only he who cries out for the Jews may sing Gregorian chant.
0: Bonhoeffer meant that genuine faith requires that we identify ourselves with those who are being wrongfully persecuted. We must demonstrate compassion and care for those people or our faith is no value and we might as well skip the hymn singing. Bonhoeffer participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler. He was arrested and hanged less than a month before the German surrender. In his death, Bonhoeffer again associated himself with the Jews for whom he had compassion in life. Next, let's look at the wisdom of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King was a pastor and scholar and the leader of the nonviolent civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s. On Good Friday of 1963, Dr. King was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama, while leading a campaign to end the city's racial segregation system. While he was under arrest, Dr. King wrote his letter from a Birmingham jail. It was an open letter that was addressed to eight white Birmingham pastors who had published a statement in the Birmingham newspaper condemning the protests. In his response letter, Dr. King refuted the white pastor's charges that the African-American community was too impatient and that the campaign was too extreme. Dr. King wrote that human progress, quote, comes through the tireless efforts of men willing to be co-workers with God. He prided himself to be among extremists like Jesus, the prophet Amos, the apostle Paul, and Abraham Lincoln. He quoted the classical theologians Augustine And Aquinas, that an unjust law is no law at all. Dr. King consistently expressed his concern that segregation was not only hurting African Americans, it also hurt whites in that whites had a false sense of superiority.
1: And he closed his letter from a Birmingham jail like this. Josh. If I have said anything that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than full brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a clergyman and a Christian brother. Dr. King did not disparage those who opposed him. He was not mean
0: or hateful. He gave good reasons for what the campaign had done, and he won many friends by his wisdom. Then there is a woman named Christiane Collins who reminds us that faith is required to exercise holy disobedience. Christiane Collins was arrested for blocking access to abortion clinics to save the lives of unborn children. On one occasion, she was arrested as she stood outside the offices of an abortion clinic. She was sharing information about positive alternatives to abortion. She was charged with and convicted of unlawful entry. She was offered the opportunity to make a statement to the court before she was sentenced. And here is the conclusion to her statement to the court.
2: Your Honor, I know when I walk through that door into your jail, life is going to be painful for me. But I want to say that the day is going to come when you and I are going to stand before a different judge. Today, I face temporal consequences for my action to love and protect preborn children. I am willing to do that. I would far rather pay any consequence you can impose upon me for my action to love and protect these children and their mothers than to one day face the righteous judge and have to say I was not faithful to the call of Christ. When that day comes, I want you and the people in this courtroom to know I will be praying for you and that you, will come to, that you will come to a reconciliation between right and wrong and have given your allegiance to God's justice. That is all I have to say, Your Honor.
0: Christiane Collins tells us that her holy disobedience will be difficult, but that she can do this because she has faith that there will one day be a righteous judge who will make all things right. So, these are the character qualities of those who exercise holy disobedience well courage, compassion, wisdom, and faith. Tall order, isn't it? Aren't those qualities that all of us could use more of as believers? These are things that are required not only to disobey government well, but to live life well and to make an impact in our community. The final point I want to make is that the very model. For holy disobedience is our Savior. Jesus went to the cross and we were brought to a right relationship with God because he defied both religious and secular authorities. The religious authorities of Jesus' time said that the key to a right relationship with God was rule keeping, keeping the commandments, keeping certain human additions to the commandments which the religious authorities themselves, themselves had promulgated. But Jesus taught something quite different and which was offensive to the religious authorities. Jesus taught that the key to a right relationship with God is God's grace and that he, Jesus, would die in our place to secure forgiveness for all who would follow him in faith. And as he exercised holy disobedience, Jesus demonstrated courage, compassion, wisdom He demonstrated courage when he overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple because they were dealing unjustly with the poor and they were keeping Gentiles from worship. He had compassion for the sick, and so he healed on the Sabbath even though the religious authorities objected. He taught with a wisdom that delighted and astounded his hearers but confounded the religious authorities." And he showed faith when he told Pontius Pilate that there was another judge and that Pilate had only that authority which had been granted to him by God and that one day God will make all things right. Yes, ultimately we receive our salvation by the holy obedience, holy disobedience of Jesus. As I've prepared for this message, I have to tell you that I've gone through, I would say, both exhilaration and despair. As part of my preparation, I read a book on abortion I read a biography of Martin Luther King of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and of Cory Ten Boom and of course I've been thrilled to see the length to which some Christians will go to care for others and to be faithful to God but there's a flip side to this I've read about the inhumanity of humanity I've read about racism that oppresses and burns and kills I've read about cruelty and oppression in prisons and concentration camps. And I, I'm sorry to say I've read frequently about the hypocrisy and the indifference of people of the church who claim to be God's people. And so I would read these stories. I read these four books back to back to back to back. And I, it was just too hard to read sometimes. And so I would t- take my solace in w- the place I always take solace which when I'm sorrowful. And that is a bowl of ice cream. So, that's my remedy for sorrow, and so, one night I was on a run to Schnucks for the precious, frozen liquid, and I had been reading one of those stories. And um, partway there, I just said, "God, why don't? How could you permit this to go on? Why don't you just end this world and judge us all, me included?" Then, someplace between the parking lot and Schnucks. And the Briar's chocolate chip. Um, I remembered the cross, which is a good thing to remember. You see, to me, Jesus might die on the cross for people who are good, people like Corey Tenboom, people of courage, compassion, wisdom, and faith. But I had to remember that night that he also died on the cross for people who do terrible things, and he died for people who have very little courage very little compassion, who are lacking in wisdom and have only the smallest faith. He died not only for the worst of us, but he died for those of us who are just someplace in between, but who struggle with problems like anger and lying and gossip and try to be faithful and don't always succeed. So Jesus went to the cross for forgiveness, for the forgiveness of all who believe No matter how lacking, no matter how bad. And that means that there is forgiveness that is available for me and for you. In a few moments, we're going to take communion together, and maybe the point is obvious, but we ought to draw the connection between what I've talked about this morning and the table. The table is, in a way, the great leveler. The cross is the great leveler, isn't it? We've talked this morning about some people who have done wonderful things, it's Memorial Day and we remember we remember those who have lived sacrificially for us as a nation and sometimes died for us in sacrifice to this nation. We've talked about four people who have those wonderful character qualities. And yet there is no one who has lived so well as not to need the forgiveness of the cross that is represented by this table. There is none here who doesn't need this table. On the other hand, we've talked about some things that are really very unpleasant. We've talked about people who have done very cruel and oppressive things. And we have to acknowledge that very few of us have those four wonderful character qualities in the depth that we would like them. But we can also come to this table in confidence that Christ's death on the cross covers the sins for all who come in faith. So this table is not only necessary for each one of us, it is also sufficient for each one of us. There is no one who is beyond God's grace. So, this is a table which is open to all who believe that Christ has given himself in payment for their sins. This is not Green Tree's table. This is not a Presbyterian table. This is a table open to all. I would urge you, though, that if you don't know what Christ's death on the cross means for you, that you would refrain from partaking this morning and wait until you have worked that out. So let let me pray for us, please. Lord, thank you that you have given your body and your blood for us that we might draw close to you that we might have our sins forgiven and be strengthened and we pray in your name amen servers would you please come up so let me let me remind you of what paul reminds us the lord jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me